Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and affect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Andrew Womack. Hello and welcome to our Truth and Liberty live call-in show. This is our Wednesday edition. It's my day to host. And today we are really blessed to have David Riffle with us and I'll give him a little better introduction. You're going to really be blessed by this, man. He and his wife have uh, seen God do some great, great things in their life and we're going to be sharing some good things. Uh, but before I get into that, let me mention that next week is our Global Ministers Conference and this will be our 40th anniversary. We call it a global one because in the past we would just do it locally and we didn't live stream it because we wanted it to be primarily for ministers. Now we are sending this worldwide to our different locations and people who are in full-time ministry can sign up and register and get in on a feed. But uh, if you are a minister or know a minister, if you have your local minister that you would like to participate in this, please go to awmi.net in order to register. You can follow the prompts there and it's going to be awesome. I'm really excited about it. And then we have our Women Arise that is coming up on November the 2nd through the 4th and we're going to have Elizabeth Murin, the one who puts on all of our musicals and dramas and she's going to be speaking and Carrie Pickett and Audrey Mack and uh, I tell you these are just three powerful women. I'm not supposed to tell you this, but last year I watched the women's conference online and it was awesome. I don't know why we call it a women's conference. I don't know that it's special for women and like our men's advance, uh, that's good for anybody. But nonetheless, that's coming up on November the 2nd through the 4th and I'd encourage you to be a part of that. And there's just so many good things happening here in the ministry. Please check out awmi.net or you can go to truthandliberty.net and Truth and Liberty is supported primarily by people that we call our uh, partners, our members, and these are people that go to our website, truthandliberty.net, and they sign up for a reoccurring automatic withdrawal of $5 or more per month. And those are the people that we call uh, members, and that's how we finance this. And I forget exactly, but I think we have about five or six employees that are full-time and then we have all of the programs that we put on. We now do this five days a week from 3.30 until 5 each weekday, Monday through Friday at Mountain Time. And um, anyway, it's really good. So we'd encourage you to be a part of that. So David Riffle is my guest today and uh, we're going to go into a little bit of background and tell you about how he connected with us and where he came from and what he's doing. But this is a very special day for you tomorrow, and so I'd like you to uh, Come on share over, what man. that's about. So this is David Riffle and his wife, Marion. So this is Marion, my bride of 56 years on Friday this week, and awesome. we are blessed. God has been so good to us, and we both went through Karis together. Yeah. And so we also have done ministry together. So everything we do generally, it's the two of us. 
and we started a culture impact team at Church for All Nations in Colorado Springs, and that grew to be a powerful, effective tool, and we're going to be talking about those culture impact teams today, so I just wanted to show you who's the real powerhouse behind the scenes. <laughs> Man, that's, a, that's unusual today to have 56 years. It you is, guys it have is. broken the mold. You're well, doing great. I have two people to thank, the Lord and Marion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it takes a greater woman of that's God right. to live with the man that's of right. God. It that's really right. <laughs> you guys thank are you, Marion. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and without divulging his age for to be married for 56 years, you've got to be in really good shape. It's amazing. You know, I, I don't want to. Uh, well, I'm, I'm 76. I, and I know, but I was just going to ask, do you color your no, hair? No, I don't. Now that is impressive. Look and at me. I, I was looking at one of my television programs and just nine years ago, I had brown hair. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Well, I have a friend who the hairline is moving further back. Yeah, and it's like in retreating hairline. Yes, and we were talking about our grandson who has wavy hair, and our friend said, well, I used to have the waves, now I have the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been blessed to be strong and healthy, and about 40-some years ago, God quickened a word to me from Psalm 103.5, that he satisfies my mouth with good things so that my youth is Amen. renewed Amen. like the eagles. Well, it's one good thing to have your strength renewed. It's even better to have your youth renewed. Mm -hmm. And for years, before I understood all the things we do about the scripture and about the promises, I had thought, I wonder what it is that you put in your mouth that renews your youth. I mean, it was working but I didn't understand the, the how. And one day God showed me it's not what I put into my mouth. In fact, that's what society's been searching for for thousands of years. What could you eat or drink to make you younger? It's what comes out. That's, that sounds like mouth. Jesus. When God's word, the scripture says that the words, my son, uh, neglect not my words, for they are life to all who find them, and health to all. Amen. All, all. Oh, well. All, all are you flesh. convicting me over <laughs> my hair? <laughs> I was talking to Kenneth Copeland, and he's only got one or two gray hairs. He's 86. And, That's amazing. And uh, he says, I just talked to it. And I thought, well, I, for, I didn't catch that part, but you know what? I still got hair. That's so right. To me, it, That's something it I was going to mention. Both of us, regardless of the color of the hair, <laughs> Having that hair, that's a blessing. So were you raised in a Christian home? I was. In fact, my dad was a Baptist pastor, so I grew up under the Word. Only I grew up under a very legalistic approach to the Word. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I saw no joy, no supernatural, no results of living the Christian life that we, in fact, we were told, now you've got to be an example to all the other kids in the church, and you know, you can't do this, mm -hmm. you can't do that. And so it was all about what you couldn't do. And so at age 17, I quit going to church. I bet that blessed your dad. Oh boy. And then at age 19, I married Marion, well, not married, started dating. And then at age uh, almost 21, married her in a Catholic church. Oh, man, I bet your dad was having with <laughs> problems. I, with I think it caused him to 
go to prayer seriously. Yeah. And uh, he said the Lord told him to go to the wedding. And uh, so he did. And then about a year or two after that, he got filled with the Holy Spirit and began to teach what he had learned in his Baptist church. And there were quite a few people who were really enthralled with what he was teaching. But he got kicked out of his Baptist church and they took a vote. And the final vote, they said, you are being removed because what you're teaching is not Baptistic. Uh -huh. It wasn't that. that it wasn't yeah. scriptural. Yeah. It was not Baptistic. Yeah. Uh -huh. But God launched him into a ministry that he went around the world for about a year with not any funding. The church had previously owned the home, the car, so he lost his home, his car, his salary, and his friends. And yet God launched them into a trip around the world. He wrote books. He appeared on the 700 Club in different venues. Wow. And so it was a fulfilling life afterward that it was really released from that ministry that had kind of kept well, him in How did box. that impact you to see the change in him? Well, previously he had been, as I mentioned, legalistic. And when I had quit going to church, he would come in on Sunday morning and God is going to deal with you. And I would pull the covers over my head. And then I had built a boat at that time and I had a motorcycle so and I had a car so I would either go out in my boat or my motorcycle with a case of beer and my cigarettes and I found true joy for the first time because I was doing what I wanted. You really had joy doing those <laughs> well, things? Compared to how I the was kept in a box legalism. it seemed mm -hmm. like true joy. So when but, did you get turned around? So. Uh, before I tell you that, there was a man that I worked in a gas station, and he was an older man than I, and he watched what I was doing and how I was kind of rebelling, and he said, well, it's okay now, but when you have kids, you're going to want them to believe something. And, you know, I could understand, and sure enough, so Marion was a devout Catholic, and she would not marry anyone that was not a Catholic, and I thought, well... I don't believe what I was brought up in. I guess I could believe that. And so I took lessons to be you a You weren't a very good Baptist. No. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I was an even worse Catholic. <laughs> wow. And so I had to take the lessons twice before I agreed because I would ask the priest questions and he couldn't answer them. I had a Bible background. I don't think he did. Mm -hmm. And he would call in the senior, uh, I guess they called him the pastor. And the pastor was from Ireland. And so he would come in, he said, now young man, if you'll accept these teachings peaceably, God will give you the grace to become a Catholic. <laughs> and, and so it just didn't work for me. But then we went to Marion's church and I took it from a couple of hippie priests. This is back in the 70s. And they had a sailboard windsurfer, and they were more relating to young people. And so they made things agreeable that I became a Catholic. But after going to Catholic Church, we had gone out to the chiropractic college, which I had already been in. And so Marion and I were living out there. And first of all, the mass was in Latin. Second of all, nine months after our wedding, we had a baby. And now we were in the cry room and you couldn't even hear the Latin. And so I just got so bored, I quit going to that. 
And of course, to Marion, to go to any other church was a mortal sin. But she became so desperate, she said, look, if you'll just go somewhere, I'll go to church with you. So I thought we could do that. So in the town of Davenport, Iowa, where the chiropractic college was, we went to about a dozen different churches over the next year. And the final one was a unity church. And it was a beautiful building up on a hill, beautiful view. And the person who got up to speak said, today, for my text, I will be speaking from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and I said, I know better. This is not church. <laughs> oh, so inside of me, that word was there. So you went from the legalistic Baptists to the liberal Catholics to the Unity <laughs> Church, Alice in Wonderland. And then, and it was time for graduation, so we came back to Michigan, and my father, the judgmental, legalistic guy, was suddenly loving, kind, gave us a check to help us out. It was like, who is this person? And we didn't realize it, but he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, I've been going to this prayer group at the Catholic Church, and he says, it's not everything that I agree with, but there's a lot that I do. And he said, how would you like to go? Well, it was Catholic, mm -hmm. so we went. And people, they were hippies, yeah. about a thousand of them, sitting cross-legged on the floor, hair down to their shoulders, in their blue jeans. But there was an electricity in that room that I had never felt. And I said, man, whatever these people have, I want. And so we began on a path, having a hunger for God. And we attended there for about a year and a half until we found that really it was just an emotional experience each week and there was no teaching. So then we went to a church that taught the Bible and we were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to grow in the Word. And so from there on, we've just continued growing in the Lord. Man, that's quite a journey. Yeah, it was quite a journey. That is quite a journey. And you mentioned in passing, but you were a chiropractor for what, 44 years? 44 years. Uh, and in fact, my goal was to be a chiropractor till I was 100. And right now, it's almost 77, I think I could he well could have done so. I saw a picture of a man who was a chiropractor at 100 standing beside his adjusting table with a patient on it. And so I uh, just loved what I did. And did you have your own business? I did. And we had great results. Chiropractic care basically says God made the body and there is interference if the segments of the spine are out of alignment that prevent the life which comes from the brain to go out to the body through the nerves. And so by moving the segments of the spine back into alignment, the life flows and it's like all we do is rearrange things there and the body does the work. So it was already easier for me to believe in the power of God to heal because I knew that God had made the body and produced the life that we were helping to So how did flow. you get from being a chiropractor to coming to Karis Bible College? You gave up your practice. What, well, what I read a book by a cowboy named Andrew Womack. <laughs> <laughs> and in it, there was a scripture. And in fact, I've gone back and reread that book. And I don't think this scripture is in the book. But when I read the book, it caused me to search the scriptures because you were saying things like, God wants you well, and 
you have authority over disease and you have the power to bind and to loose. And I just began to hunger for that kind of result plus know the word that would show me those results. And so I looked in the word and the scripture that just stopped me in my tracks was Matthew 10, 1 and Luke 9, 1, where Jesus said to the disciples, I've given you authority over all demons and disease. Yeah. Well, I had an office full of sick people. Now, they responded wonderfully most of the time to the care I gave. But there is always some who they either may have cancer beyond my care or some other thing that's not responding to my care. And so I wanted to see them find results. And so now I went back into my office after reading that book and that was in 2011. So it's 12 years ago. It was just before Christmas. And patients who, a couple who'd been patients for 30 years that I knew very well, the wife had a master's degree in education. She had gone through all seven stages of Alzheimer's disease. And her husband would tell me as he would come for his adjustments what was going on. Now she was in stage seven, the final stage. And hospice had been brought into the home because people don't get better from Alzheimer's. And so I walked into the room where they were and I had known previously about the uh, progression of her disease. I saw visually in the spirit sort of a mountain of Alzheimer's that I now could speak to. Before, I would have said, dear God, please heal her. Yeah. But now I asked the husband, is it okay if I pray for her to be healed? Yeah. So it wasn't a big mm -hmm. thing of faith, but he wasn't resisting. So I said, Alzheimer's disease, you are bound in Jesus' name. You have to leave this body now. Now, that was the first prayer in my life with authority. <laughs> I had prayed, please heal people for years and put them on a prayer chain and hope that if you get enough people, mm -hmm. you'll see God move. Now I knew that I had authority. So I commanded Alzheimer's to leave. I didn't know if any demons were involved in bringing disease, but I said, if you are bringing a disease, if you are a demon involved in this, you are bound in Jesus' name and you have to go. So I didn't see anything at that moment, but in two weeks when he came back for his adjustment, he said, she started speaking again. Well, wow. she had lost the ability wow. to speak, to read, and to write. And in fact, when you looked at her, you couldn't tell if she recognized that you were there. Now she started speaking. Wow. And then That's awesome. week after week, he would tell me about her improvement. He took her to the doctor who had followed her for five years. And the doctor said, I've talked to my colleagues and none of them have ever heard of anything like this. Now, I've never heard of anybody improving from Alzheimer's. So that's, that's really significant. And so what did that do it. to you? What did it do to your practice? Well, what it did, it made me so confident that every word in the Bible is true. I believed the Bible before, but you know, when you've never seen a miracle, you've never seen a healing, you've never seen a supernatural <clears throat> act, it kind of, it's theoretical to you. Yeah, you get a level of confidence once you oh start man. to see it. 
it's like my confidence was going through the roof and I offered to pray for any patient who either was not responding to my care or who was having something that was strictly beyond my care like mm -hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm. And so in the time until I decided to retire and we came to Karis, it was about two and a half years. And in that time, there were over 700 patients I had prayed for. And I had a ledger that I kept just like I kept notes on my patient, what date I prayed, what I prayed for, when the result came, what the result was. And over 700 people that I prayed for, not one of them said no when I asked, can wow. I pray for you to be healed? That's amazing. It was amazing. That amazing. is amazing. And then the conversations that ensued, usually after I had prayed for them, they would be choked up, tearful, um, maybe some tears coming down. And I learned to ask them, do you know what it is to be born again? Well, actually, before I would ask that, about a fourth of those patients who I prayed for would ask me questions about God. And then I would follow it up after, usually a simple question. After answering, I would ask them, do you know what it is to be born again? No. And I would explain Romans 10:9. if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I would explain being saved is an equivalent term to born again. Because people have heard terms like that, but they kind of wonder what that means. And so in that two and a half year period, 139 people got born again. Man, that is awesome. It was amazing. You know, you see more people born again and more people healed than most preachers do you in know, the entire life. I believe it. And That's awesome. So from those experiences, we just had benefited so much, but the people we had prayed for had benefited so much that I thought, you know, 44 years, that's not quitting early. I've put in my time. And so I want to go and learn more about improving my ability to help people through prayer. And so that's when he retired to come to Karis. That's amazing that you would give up your profession and I'm sure it was very lucrative and stuff and yeah. come just yeah. to put God's word first. You know, we're nearly out of time in this first segment and we hadn't even got to talk about all of the stuff that you and Mary were doing. <laughs> uh, so real quickly, uh, I know you could talk a lot about Karis and, and things, but you graduated and then you helped run our uh, practical government school. I was in the first class of the practical government school. In fact, my intent was to go to the ministry school because I thought, well, praying for people, that would be the natural school to go to. So you had an assembly in 2015 when we were in second year and you were announcing the formation of this practical mm -hmm. government school. So I just politely listened and you had David Barton up there, Richard Harris, Pastor Mark Coward, who was the director. And we, um, you know, I just listened. And when you closed in prayer, God spoke to me and said, speech writer. What does that mean? But what it did, it, I knew I was to go to the practical government school. Well, you know, you hear about speech writers who write for candidates mm -hmm. and op officials. And so I went through the school and w I said, you know, if we're gonna be under Pastor Mark Coward as the director, I'd like to be under him at his church. So we began attending his church. 
And he started introducing us to people, and one of them was the VP of Family Research Council. And he made the suggestion about culture impact teams. And we formed a culture impact team there at Church for All Nations that became powerful. I've heard uh, Mark and others talk about that out of all of the cultural impact teams that were under Family Research Council, that the one that you ran in Colorado Springs was the most successful, had the biggest impact, and it was powerful. So again, we, we just now are getting to where we wanted to talk about, and you got a whole slide presentation. So quickly, um, let's just go ahead and continue this. So I'm going to blow past this first break, I think. Okay. But start telling them about what a cultural impact team is and yes. what you and Marion were doing. And I teach a course on culture impact teams in the practical government school. And I had taught that for several years now, and I had created that course. But this year, when I was going to come and teach it again, there was something in my spirit that I knew it was going to have to be different. There's so much going on in our culture. And we've got to address what's going on and we've got to have a reason to address and know what the scripture says. And so we pray in the spirit quite a bit and I was praying in the spirit and I got an instant download from God of what I was to teach this year. And it was all new. And that instant download, I knew I was to teach on the topics of things I'm going to mention now that you might not know what all these initials stand for. CRT, which is critical race theory. DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And BDS, which is boycott, sanction, and diversify, or divestment uh, against Israel. And um, critical race theory and 1619 project. So. In an instant, I knew I was to teach about all the things like that that are going on in the culture that are opposing God, but it took three weeks to get it all studied, researched, and on paper. And so that's what this presentation is about. So I'm going to go through a slide presentation to familiarize you with a culture impact team. And the first segment, I've got a, a list to kind of guide me, is what is a culture impact team and that's a question we would get often and so in uh, addressing that a family research council which I've got a slide here for you to see they are they were basically established in part by Dr. James Dobson mm -hmm. wanting Christians to have a voice in government and so they've uh, created these culture impact teams fighting for our family faith our freedom and a few years ago, they renamed them Community Impact Teams. But we had already said our name, Culture Impact Team, and they said we could do that. In fact, some of the groups that have formed have been called Civic Ministries or a Public Policy Group. The name isn't critical, it's what you do. And so, whether you're a small church, uh, a church out in the country, a mega church, an old church, any church can have a culture impact team. It's people that share a passion for godliness in government, for protecting our religious liberties that are being eroded, and protecting life at every level. So you might ask, well, why would I want to form a culture impact team? Well, I've got some reasons for you. At a public library near you, this is happening across America, 
the Drag Queen Story Hour. It is a highly funded, very visible group of men who dress in drag as women and promote that lifestyle to toddlers and children in the public libraries. It's so ungodly. And they put books in the schools and the public libraries promoting this gender change, gender fluidity. And in Colorado, they passed measures so that you could put, instead of male or female on your driver's license, you could put an X there to indicate you are neither. And legalization of same-sex marriage. And this one was the, the capper to me. Faith leaders gathering to bless an abortion clinic, saying that accessing and providing abortions are godly decisions. That's terrible. Boy, if people are lost, think of who they're following. No wonder they're lost. So the need is definitely there. And uh, you can expound on this, but one of the things about uh, culture impact teams that I really liked is that it's, you don't have to be well-versed in everything. You don't have to understand everything. And it takes the pressure off of the pastor because like in Mark Cowart's church, he really didn't do anything other than just announce you were going to have it. You put all of this together. And so that's one of the major things that pastors are hesitant to do is to take on more responsibility. Yes. So. And we also served as the liaison between Pastor Mark and the group so that he didn't have six group leaders coming to him and you know he could speak to us, we could carry a message back to the group or carry the group's concerns to the pastor. It was very effective. And so we became convinced, and I'm sure you would be convinced by what's going on in the culture today. And so I began to look at what does the Bible say? Does it tell Christians to stay out of politics, to stay out of government? Because we've heard that for years, that politics is dirty, you know, we should just avoid it. Jesus is going to come and take us all out. Well, here's a parable that he told in Luke, the parable of leaven. So I'll read what he said. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. Now, in other parables, you know well, I'm sure, that Jesus likened leaven to sin. But in this case, he's not talking about leaven being like sin. He's saying that leaven is like something which affects the entire loaf, the entire uh, ball of dough into which it's introduced. So it's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. So a little bit can influence the whole thing. That's the way the church should be to the culture that we, a little group, can influence the whole culture. And that's the way the first church was. The disciples influenced the entire known world with the gospel. And so the gospel pervaded America so that it became known as a Christian nation. And so then one more parable really struck me. This one of the talents. So you know the story, and I'm not going to read all of the scriptures, but the servant who had multiplied his talent was rewarded. And the other servant who multiplied his talent was rewarded. But the one who did nothing, he was not rewarded. No. And in fact, God said, take away. You are a wicked and slothful servant. Take away what he was given and give it to the ones who did something with it. To me, God has given us 
godly freedoms enshrined in our Constitution. He's given us the right to choose our own leaders. You know, many countries don't have that. You go to a communist, socialist country, and you cannot choose your leaders. We have that talent or that gift given to us, which if we just bury it, do nothing, say, oh, politics is dirty, that right could be taken away. Amen. Let me ask you, did you have any involvement in politics or involvement and in stuff before you got into like the practical government school? None. 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 We voted faithfully and that is the extent of it. And yet I've heard you speak. You've actually conducted a citizen's academy and we've encouraged people to get involved, start running for office and, and you're well versed <laughs> in this now. Well, that's a credit to what you've done in establishing Keras. First of all, the two-year program which grounds us in the Word. Second of all, the practical government school, one of the third year choices that you can make. You can go to a media school or to um, worship school or ministry school, but I chose practical government at God's direction and it equipped us just tremendously. In fact, in our initial class, a classmate of mine, uh, Kim Kohler is now, after I retired, she's now the director, not the director, but the coordinator of yeah. that school. And she, while we were in school, imagine this, you go to school from 8 till 12, she would go out and that was the year of the election campaign that Trump was a candidate. And so it was 2016. And so she would go out and knock on doors for the Trump campaign from the time she got off school until dark. She did that every day of the campaign and was the leading door knocker for Trump in the U.S. Isn't that something? And she only did it half a day. And she's now the coordinator of our practical governments. And what's more, you know, we used to take a field trip and Richard Harris, who was coordinator when I was a student, took us to Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. Well, then when COVID came, they shut that down, couldn't go to Washington, D.C. So God gave Kim an idea, take the students to Denver. And so she had the students assigned bills that they would have to contact the legislator, find out what the bill was about, find out the progress of it, report back. And then she took them to Denver and they worked with those legislators during the week and followed, saw how legislators work. That school is equipping people to run for office or to support those who run or to lead a culture impact team to do something to change the culture. Well, man, we're just now getting to where we could really say a lot of really good things. But uh, let's take a break here. And on the other side, we're going to give you an opportunity to come back and ask uh, David your questions. And we do have some open lines at 719-619-2341. And we would like to hear from you. And uh, if you have a question for him, it can be on any subject, but especially the things that he's been talking about, that would be really great. 719-619-2341. And so let's take this break and we'll be right back. With practical government, you have experts in the fields that are sharing their perspective, wisdom and experience. It's not available anywhere else in the world. We're going to teach a Christian heritage of our American government. They're going to learn about the Founding Fathers. We're teaching the Constitution, how government operates, practical skills, and field study. No matter where you're coming from, the world needs you. Whatever God's calling you to do, you're able to do it. To learn more, visit practicalgovernmentschool.com. 
At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. Hi, my name is Carrie Pickett, and like many of you, I wear lots of hats. But most of all, I'm a child of God. Ever since I was young, my desire has been to share the unconditional love of God. There is nothing more rewarding to me than people changing their lives and then changing the world. That's why I'm inviting you to join me wherever you are, and let's discover together these foundational truths that will transform your life. So welcome back to Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. And my guest today is David Riffle. And we've been talking, we shared about how he came to know the Lord. That was very, very interesting. And then we've talked about him being a chiropractor, getting hold of the fact that he has authority and seeing 160... 139. 139 people born again, 700 and... Prayed for over 700. Over to be 700 healed. healed. And man, then he closed down his chiropractic business, came to school. Uh, I'm sure that Karis was very impactful, but then you went into the practical government school, and that lit a fire on you and Marion to get involved in politics. He started uh, what the Freedom Research Council, which was actually started by James Dobson, Focus on the Family, and he started what they call a cultural impact team, which is basically just going into a church and getting the members uh, educated and involved and making a difference. And the one in Mark Cowart's church, uh, Church for All Nations in Colorado Springs, is probably one of the greatest examples of what a cultural impact team can do. How many people did you have involved in that? I would guess that Park, Pastor Mark Cowart's church had 1,500 people or so between the couple services on mm -hmm. Sunday, and we would have 200 people coming to those twice a month meetings. That's amazing. And, and I've personally seen the results that that's made. Many people came from other churches because their pastors wouldn't talk about what's going on in the culture, and they wouldn't give them the biblical viewpoint on same-sex marriage or on abortion, and they wanted to hear, what does the Bible say? And so this is a tremendous asset to any church. Yeah. And we did things that were community service assets. We put on public forums when candidates would be running for city council, school board, uh, various uh, positions, and we would have 14 candidates on the platform of church with the draped tables and the name cards. It looked just like it was being put on by Net National Network TV. And the moderator, Ken Davis, would ask questions of each one, and you would hear the viewpoints that would really show you which candidate you felt was the one you wanted to vote for. And you felt like that made a difference in the elections. It really did. The people were well served to be able to make a choice because most people who go into elections don't know the candidates. And many times they don't know what they stand for. Well, man, I got so many questions I'd love to ask you, but I am going to give the people that are on the phones an opportunity. Let me say that we have some lines open, 719-619-2341, and we will take your call. But, you know, if you don't call in, I'll just let David continue to talk because he's got a lot more to share. So I'll kind of leave it up to you. So first of all, let's go to Bobby in Uganda. 
and you are calling all the way from Uganda. Welcome to the show, Bobby. Thank you so much. Hello there. Hello. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, so my question is, as a person who serves in my Grace Church, what do I do if it is starting to, to take a legalistic turn? Well, let me start, and I'll give Dave an opportunity to speak out on this, but you as a church member do not have the authority to change the church. Now, you can, it depends on the pastor. If the pastor is a good pastor, and if he's humble, and if he will welcome your input, you're certainly welcome to give it, and if his heart is open, you could impact him. But if the pastor is legalistic, and if he's, if he's prone that way, uh, you don't have the right or the authority to change that church. And actually, you're going to do damage if you start talking against the pastor and undercutting his authority and stuff like that. So I would, I would say that if it's a great church, a great minister, and if he's receptive, you could share with him. Otherwise, you need to go find you a church that you can support the uh, vision of that. I agree. You, you need to be fed and you need to grow spiritually. And if the restrictions that are being placed on you are preventing spiritual growth and they're causing resentment in your heart, you need to find a place where you can grow. Yeah, so that, David is saying that from your standpoint, what's good for you and your growth. And uh, even if you're strong enough that you don't have to have the input of that church, uh, you are gonna do damage if you start undercutting that pastor. Anything with two heads is a monster. And so the head of that church, you, he either voluntarily submits, and if he doesn't, well, then you just uh, go find you someplace else to go. What I'm I saying. agree. Amen. So thanks for your call, Bobby. Let's go to Mary in Virginia, and you're on Truth and Liberty Live with uh, David Riffle and Andrew Womack. Hi. God bless you both, and thank you so much. Thank you. And, um, you're welcome. I hope, I hope I can say this real quick. Um, the testimony of the woman who had Alzheimer's, that blessed me real good because, and it boosted my hope so much because my mom has the dementia diagnosis. So when I see her, I look at her like, what are you still doing here? I thought I cashed you out. But that just made me so much, con made me so confident um, that I just got to do it again. But mm -hmm. um, my question is, so I've been in the first couple chapters of Matthew. Um, and I've been thinking, Joseph from Joseph and Mary, I feel like he died prematurely. And what might have been the reason? Well, th there could be a million different things. It sounds to me like, Mary, you think that um, if a person dies prematurely, it must have been God's will or something. It wasn't. And also, you need to take into account that Mary, most people believe she was somewhere around 15 or so when she had Jesus, but it wasn't unusual for a girl in those days to marry somebody that's 20 or 25 years older than her. And so Jesus was 30 years old when he came uh, to the temple and began his public ministry. And all we know is that Joseph had passed by that time. So if you add, let's say that he was 20 years old and Mary, then he would have been 35 at the time Jesus was born. And then you add 30 years to that, uh, that'd be 65. And that's not that far from where we are. But whatever his reason for dying was, it wasn't God who took him. There's just a lot of things that happen. And just because a person uh, is chosen to be the uh, stepfather of the Son of God doesn't mean that he was a spiritual giant and that he operated in healing. 
Mm -hmm. You got anything to say on that? Yeah, we didn't understand many of these principles earlier in our life, and I'm sure that we could have taken a different stance against disease in our own lives and in the lives of our relatives had we known. But thank God we know now. Yeah. So we're not going to let that happen yeah, to the next one. Joseph didn't have the word that we have. Jesus hadn't provided healing for us yet. So in a sense, Joseph was still an Old Testament man that really didn't have very much recourse to this. So there, there could just be a lot of reasons. But Mary, I don't know exactly the reason you're asking that, but it really has no bearing on God moving in your life and answering your prayer because uh, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says we have a better covenant that's established upon better promises. So what we have and what Joseph had are really two different things. It's apples and oranges and we have a covenant that you can walk in divine health and just like you were hearing Dave talk about 76 years old and still Man, he's still out elk, elk hunting and moving, and he's talking about moving uh, sacks of concrete, which those things are heavy. <laughs> I've done that. You can do it. So, anyway, God wants you well. We believe that, Mary. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's go to Joanne here, and you are an AWM partner. You're from North Carolina, and you're on Truth and Liberty with Andrew and Dave. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Dave. Thank you for taking my call. We just yes, love you, Andrew, so much. I met you probably 10 years ago in um, Charlotte. I think that mm -hmm. was your last year of you going there. So um, I have a question about healing. Um, last year, last October, I was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, immediately was treated with chemo. December 29th was my last treatment, and I've been doing pretty good since maybe March of this year, um, regaining my strength and appetite. Um, a recent scan showed it came back. And a week after I was diagnosed last year, I had a direct word from the board in a dream that he was going to turn that all around. I believe that, and I still believe that. My question to you, Andrew, is I don't understand I understand cancer is of the enemy. I understand that part. I don't understand how he can affect physically the body, how it actually has a physical impact. And some people say, you know, you got to cut out sugar or you got, you know, there's unforgiveness or all these different excuses. But then I look at babies or I look at animals who had cancer. And so, I don't know if you if you have some encouragement for me of what to you just call out cancer every day cancer go you know I don't know what to do at this point. Well, Joanne, I can't give you all of the reasons why people get cancer. I think there are multiple reasons. You know, it's been proven that as, uh, asbestos can cause lung cancer. There's certain chemicals that uh, affect us and things like that, and it could be some of those things you're mentioning. I believe some of it is just a spiritual attack. I believe some of it is fear. Fear attracts sickness and disease. There's just multiple reasons why cancer comes, and without knowing specifically where you are and things like that, I don't know that I can give you an answer, but I can tell you that the answer to whatever it is, regardless of how it came, is that by the stripes of Jesus you were healed. 
and that you have the authority, just like David was talking about when he saw in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, that God gave us authority over all sickness, over all diseases, and over all demons to cast them out. It doesn't really matter how it came. It only matters in the sense that if you are doing something specifically that is inviting it in, like say, for instance, I believe that unforgiveness, bitterness is just an invitation for come, Satan to come. In James chapter 3, verse 16, it says that uh, where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. So if you're in strife, it's just like saying, devil, come destroy my life. Do whatever you want to. So the only reason it matters where it came from is if you are doing something that is officially inviting Satan to come in and attack you. And if that's so, you need to repent of that and turn. But there, we live in a fallen world. And there's just evil things that happen without you being the cause of it. It's just, uh, you know, we're just in a fallen world. And so regardless how it comes, you have authority over it. And what you've got to do, Joanne, is just start taking hold of those truths, just like what David was sharing. When he got hold of that truth about having the authority, man, he started believing. And I would suspect, David, that some of the people you prayed for, you didn't really go into how did this come? What no. did you do? No. You just took no. your authority and... Yes, so it, yes. Work. it was really simple to pray and to believe. But one thing I think the church has missed over the centuries, in fact, I think the church has been taught wrong over the centuries, that whatever happens is God's will. Mm -hmm. Now, Joanne, I don't believe you, you feel that way, but so many Christians are just accepting of whatever happens to them because it must be God's will mm -hmm. because it happened. Well. I think many in the church are not really considering what the scriptures say, that the thief, Satan, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so he will often, uh, often operate by working at fear, causing a diagnosis to cause us to go into fear and to lose our confidence in God. And we can have the stress of the situation cause us to be in fear. And so when we start believing God, that is wonderful and we will usually see results. But we have to remember that that doesn't cause the enemy to fold up his tent and leave and stay away permanently. He comes to try and persist in stealing, killing, and destroying. We have to persist in our faith, in our stance, in our speaking, in our believing, and it's oftentimes a big challenge. And we personally, my wife and I have both had physical challenges that we've had to continue to speak to, command things to leave, thank God for healing, thank Him for His promises, continue believing until we see that breakthrough. And Joanne, Jesus even taught that once you cast a demon out of a person, you could say that once you get rid of sickness or something like that, that that spirit goes about seeking another place. And if it can't find one, it'll come back and bring seven more spirits with it. So the point I'm making is that Jesus taught us that just because you overcome the devil, cast him out, overcome sickness, cast it out, that doesn't mean that you're never going to have another problem. Matter of fact, Satan will come back and try and take back that thing because you have been affected by cancer. You've dealt with it, and when you have it come back, there's a fear element that you have to deal with, like what David was saying. And you're just, you're vulnerable for a period of time. Just like when a person gets over some kind of a sickness, it basically depletes their immune system for a while. And for a while, they are actually uh, vulnerable 
because they've been depleted fighting this thing. Satan is just going to come back. So I, you shouldn't be surprised to see Satan come back. And instead, you need to get this attitude like, Satan, I, be, I beat you once, and man, you show your head again, I am going to destroy you. You've already dealt with cancer once, Joanne, and so, man, you just need to take what you did the first time in your stance, and you need to get even more vicious, and then you need to protect that house so that Satan won't find an empty place and come back and be able to come. And I'd like to add something, Joanne, that we get caught in the mechanics of how we're working against disease and many times we're repeating our you know Satan you gotta go and disease you gotta go but you need really I, I think to find the Word of God that comes alive to you, the promise that God's made in the Scripture, that He's no respecter of persons. What He did for someone else, He'll do for you. Or that He healed all their diseases. You keep meditating on the Word, studying the Word, looking for those promises, speaking them, believing them, something will ignite inside of you. And I believe when the Word says that faith comes by hearing, that hearing is when your spirit comes alive, when the word comes alive to you, and when you have an alive word, you hold on to that and you will see victory. And also, I've learned that you can't be asking why and effectively resisting the devil at the same time. Those are like in two opposite directions. When you are resisting the devil and you have the authority that David was talking about, and you understand this, boy, you get an attitude. You get mad, and you are fighting against that thing, and that is the opposite of saying, God, why did this happen? You can't be actively fighting the devil and at the same time asking why. So, Joanne, if you are in the situation where this has come back, I, what I would do is just take the Word of God, fight it, resist that thing, overcome it, and after it's gone, maybe ask God, what, is there something I need to learn through this? But you don't need to put yourself in neutral and be asking why. You just need to know that it's not God that caused it. It's the devil, and you just take your authority and you resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the way it works. Does that help, Joanne? Yes, sir. Amen. I, I appreciate that, both of you. Thank you for your um, response. All right. Thank you. And thank you for being a partner with us, Joanne. That's such a blessing. What a blessing. So, David, we got just a few minutes for our next break. So, rather than taking a call, is there something else you wanted to say about all this God? Yes. Our founding fathers were so godly, and they're being painted today by people who want to revise history. You'll hear the term historical revisionism. That's trying to make history different than it really was. Mm -hmm. And so they will either delete things from the history books or not mention them or tell you things that are not the truth of how history really was. So they've called our founding fathers either deists or atheists. And so they're trying to diminish their godliness and trying to make America a secular nation. That's not the way it That's was. Right. In fact, the one person who's considered the least religious founding father is Benjamin Franklin. And when Benjamin Franklin was 80 years old, in fact, I think he was a couple years older than that, he was working with the Continental or the Constitutional Congress trying to come up with the Constitution for this new nation. Mm -hmm. And they were just stumbling and having difficulties and not able to come to agreements. And so he stood up and gave an impassioned talk to them. And he said, 
when we first began this conflict with Britain, we had daily prayers in this very room in Independence Hall, and we sought the benevolence of providence, the way they referred mm -hmm. to God. And we had daily prayers seeking for his wisdom, his guidance, and we saw great victory. And now, here we are, stumbling about, we probably couldn't find the truth if it hit us in the head or something like that. We're like people groping in the dark. And don't you think we ought to have prayers every day before we begin our deliberations? And you know, that turned the course of events around, that they began to seek God and they began to get unity among them. Yep. And, and that was the least religious. The least the religious founding father. So I have taken captions from his talk and I have illustrated what scripture verses he was quoting. So on the screen, there is the first uh, caption or quote, groping as it were in the dark is the way he described them. Well, that comes from Job 12:25. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them to stagger like a drunken man. Then he referred to the father of lights and that comes from James 1:17. Every good gift and every perfect gift that's from above comes down from the father of lights. And he goes on and God governs in the affairs of men. That's found in Daniel. A sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice. That's from Matthew 10:29. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. The point being, the historians who want to call him the least religious of our founding fathers, that's almost a compliment because he quoted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven scriptures in saying that we ought to have daily prayers every morning here when we're seeking for God's wisdom. And so what does that tell you about the rest of the founding fathers if he was the least religious? And did you know that Benjamin Franklin actually built a tabernacle for George Whitfield? to preach in and George Wilfred had a big impact on him. And Benjamin Franklin did a lot of things. Part of that quote, you didn't quote this part, but he said, if a sparrow can't fall without God knowing, then can a kingdom or our nation rise without his help? And so that's an excellent point that you're making. If he's the least religious, yes. Yes. well then that just dispels a lot of this critical race theory. and Plus the other founders who were more religious than him, founded Bible societies. In Thomas fact, Jefferson. one of the first acts of the first Congress after we became a nation was to have 20,000 Bibles printed at government expense right. because the Bible was used as a text in school so children would learn to read. And they had things such as the uh, McGuffey Primer mm -hmm. and A was for Adam who sinned and B was and they would yeah. go through the alphabet and teach the alphabet by scripture. Yeah. And let me say that if you missed our Truth and Liberty conference that we had just two weeks ago, David Barton taught two of the best messages that I've ever heard in my life. And one of them was on the 1619 Project, which the woke people used to say that America was all racist and all evil. And he contrasted the 1619 Project, which was Jamestown, with the 1620 Project, which was uh, Plymouth. And I tell you, it is phenomenal and it will literally kill for anybody that is not biased and already committed to 
believing something, it will answer your questions. And you can go to our website, awmi.net, and I would imagine that truthandliberty.net also would have that listed. But you need to go watch that message. It is really, really powerful. So let's take another break. We've got, we're into our last segment now, and we're going to take another 90-second break. We've got a couple of people on the line. We've still got some open lines, 719-619-2341. And right after this break, we'll be back with David Ripple. Andrew has many conferences and seminars around the globe each year. For the latest information on Andrew's complete speaking schedule, visit our website at awmi.net slash events. You were created with a purpose. Written in the heart of God. Long before you were born. He is calling you to find it. To help you experience his unconditional love, to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. Welcome back to Truth and Liberty Live Wednesday call-in show. I got David Riffle, my guest, and I tell you, we've just barely scratched the surface on some of the things that he was wanting to share. Let's do this one thing about uh, that little graph that you've got, and then we'll go to some calls. Sure, sure. So on the screen, I have a graphic illustration of what part the United States played in slavery in the global slave trade. Now, you don't hear this talked about. They try and paint America as an evil nation because we had slavery. We and actually yet, had a senator, I think, either a representative or a senator that said that America invented slavery. Oh, yes. And Boy, that is dumber than a it, bag of rocks. They it should is. Kick that guy is. out right then. So when you look at this, that big pie represents how many people were enslaved during the period of slavery globally about 150 years. First of all, the slavery that we had was exported to us from England. We did not invent it. And in fact, many, many of the founding fathers wanted to eliminate slavery from the start, but they had to get a union agreement among the different states, and the southern economy was based on slavery. And but so did they, you know, even before that, uh, George Washington and George Mason in 1760 petitioned King George to end slavery. Yes. And they tried, and, and King George owned the uh, largest share in the slave trade. He was making billions off mm -hmm. of it. And they were colonies, and they couldn't. The king would not allow them to end it. In fact, Thomas Jefferson tried to free his slaves, yeah. which he had inherited. And it was against the law in the colonies of Virginia right. to free slaves. Mm -hmm. And even though he tried, he was legally in, unable. Yet he wrote 
the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And I guess you're aware that he, his first draft of the Declaration actually prohibited slavery. Well, what it did, it said that we believe these truths to be self-evident and the things that we were to pursue were life, liberty, and property. That was the first draft, life, liberty, and property. But he and others said, well, at this moment, by the, the courts, slaves are considered property. And if we say we're going to pursue life, liberty, and property, we're saying we're endorsing slavery. So he changed the Declaration of Independence to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He also, though, had a provision in there against slavery. I've read it. I can't quote it right now. But they had uh, 11 of the 13 colonies that were willing to accept it, but they had already made a decision that unless they were unified, they wouldn't do this mm -hmm. because it could be sudden death. And so that was a compromise. You can mm -hmm. sit there and criticize their compromise, but you can't criticize their desire. And that declaration laid the foundation for freedom. Yes. And referring back to this graphic for just a moment, it shows that of the huge global slave trade, the United States represented 2.4% of the glo global slave trade. They were by far the smallest representation of any nation. The biggest one was Portugal. You never hear Portugal being criticized about slavery. So what people do that are revisionist historians, like the 1619 Project, is try and magnify the evils. but. Our country is the only country that fought a war to end slavery. Yep. Our country elected a black president. Yep. Our country passed civil rights legislation primarily by white men who were congressmen and senators. And so our country has done more than any other to end slavery. And I would say that America was the very first nation to actually prohibit or limit slavery. Now, some people will argue and say, oh, no, Britain outlawed slavery. Well, they outlawed it in, I think, the 1830s or something like that. But in 1808, Thomas Jefferson signed that there could be no importation or exportation of slaves. And that was to end the slave trade. And the sentiment in the United States was against slavery, and it was dying out. And they figured that in a couple of years, just ending the importation and exportation of slaves would stop the slave trade. And it was headed that direction. But then they came up with the cotton gin and made uh, cotton a huge product in the South, and it could not exist without slavery. And so the South just began to start expanding their slavery a lot. But anyway, the United States was the very first nation that ever put a restriction on slaves. And people have been taught the wrong thing about it. Yes, that's and that's true. the point, that the facts become twisted by those who have an agenda to try and destroy America. They want to paint America as evil for having had slavery. They say it's irredeemable that even though you would change your attitudes now, that you can't make America good anymore because we have that stain yeah. on our history. That is so far from the truth. That's true. 600,000 people fought and died in a war to end slavery. And you know, Booker T. Washington was a black man uh, in the 1800s, and he was taught that America was uh, racist and stuff. And as he got to studying it and studying the Constitution and stuff, he found out it was exactly the opposite, that those founding fathers were passing these things, trying to limit it. And he became a great advocate 
for the Constitution and, of course, against slavery, but, I mean, he turned around. And any person who really studies it, I think, would come to that conclusion. You know, some people have probably heard of watch night services, but what a watch night service was in 1808, Thomas Jefferson, they had in the Constitution that they could not limit slavery until 20 years after the passage of the Constitution. And again, that was because the Southern states would not support it. So it was a compromise. And on 1808, January the 1st, 1808, was when that 20 years was up and the blacks had all night parties waiting for midnight. And at 1201 on January the 1st, 1808, Thomas Jefferson signed that thing prohibiting the import and the export of slavery, and that was the first watch night service. Mm, People mm. don't know that kind of stuff. But see, again, it is, it's a perverted history, all yes. of this. Uh, Something else that you may not know, and I didn't know until I went through the practical government school, so you probably remember that John Adams was vice president under uh, George Washington, and then he became our second president. And later, his son, John Quincy Adams, was our sixth president. Well, at age 14, John Quincy Adams was sent abroad as a representative of the U.S. government at age 14. Yeah, yeah. and he spoke multiple languages. Yes, and later became our sixth president, and while president, tried his very best to end slavery, was unable to do so. So he went back from being president to being in the House of Representatives, the only president to have ever gone from the high position back into a lower position. He served for 17 years in Congress. And every session he introduced bills to end slavery. And the others from the South who were so tired of hearing his bills passed a gag order that prevented him from introducing a bill about slavery. And was it John Quincy or was it his father, John Adams, that uh, defended the Amistad uh, slaves, the, the slaves that were caught on a ship and they wanted to imprison them? Anyway, they went, it was one of those two. I don't know. That went to court and defended them and, and obtained their freedom. People don't know these things. But there was a subsequent part to the story of John Quincy Adams the, in the House of Representatives. He persisted in lobbying the other legislators to change their minds towards slavery. And he just was relentless in his passion to end slavery. And even though he couldn't introduce bills on the floor of the House, he could talk to those. And there was a freshman in the House of Representatives who, during the later years of John Quincy Adams fighting to restore to uh, end slavery, he became influenced by John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams later was restored to allow bills to be introduced because they saw he was really well-intentioned and this was a good thing he was after. They gave him a cane, an inscription on it, and an award for his persistence toward the, the good thing he was doing. and. He died on the floor of the House of Representatives. I've been in that exact spot. And one of the young men who was a freshman legislator who carried out the president was Abraham Lincoln. I know. 
and Matt Austin. Abraham Lincoln was influenced by John Quincy Adams, and he carried on to end slavery. Amen. We could just go on and on with all of these facts that are so contrary to what's being told today. But let's go to the phones. We got Robert from Florida. You're on Truth and Liberty with Dave and Andrew. Hi, uh, Andrew, and hi, Dave. Um, I have a pressing question because there has been a lot of, uh, say, hypothesis or conjecture, but no real blueprint or template of what the kingdom of God would look like physically here on earth as it is in heaven. And my question to Dave is, can we ask him if he's going to put a prototype together where it would actually be a working model of the ecclesia, the church government, taking the seven mountains and bringing to pass all the remaining scriptures so that God can return for the kingdoms of this earth as as uh, it says like in uh, Revelation 11, 15, Acts 3, 19, 21. Dave, uh, do you feel like you could or that you want to build a template or a, a blueprint of the kingdom of God physically returning here on earth as it is in heaven? Yes, I do. <laughs> I'd like to uh, use the textbook that we use at Karis Bible College, and that's the Bible. And there's a template in the scripture on us returning the kingdom. Jesus told us to pray that the kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so really ending the evils in our culture is part of what we are assigned to do. And there are means to do so. We have authority over the God of this world, over the devil. We have authority over disease. We can take authority over people whose minds are blinded and we can counteract that with truth. When truth comes in, it will prevail. In fact, the scripture in Hebrews uh, 4, 12 says the word of God is powerful. It's alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to dividing asunder of joint and marrow and soul and spirit. Well, the soul is where God speaks to us. The spirit is where we reason. And when you speak truth to an individual, it cuts between their reasoning mind and the place where God speaks to them to allow God's word to have an effect on their heart. And so when you speak truth in a legislator, you speak truth to an individual, you speak truth to a candidate or an office holder, it will have an effect. His word will not return void. And oftentimes when people speak truth to a person about salvation, about the gospel, and those people don't get born again, they are disappointed that that person didn't get born again, and so they feel that the word of God did return void, that it didn't accomplish its purpose. The purpose of the word is to give a choice. Jesus gave the Pharisees a choice. You can follow me, and you can obtain real righteousness, or you can persist in the ways you're going and have self-righteousness, and they rejected his choice. And Robert, let me say that the Bible really is the template for establishing God's kingdom. But the problem is, until I got around David Barton and Bill Federer, I read scriptures from just like a religious background. I applied it to spiritual things. But did you know that it was the Bible that taught our founding fathers the separation of powers? 
And you can see that clearly, that man Uzziah, who was a king, went in to offer a sacrifice and God struck him with leprosy. The king could not do that and the priest could not be the king. They got the separation of powers from the Bible. All of the things about justice. I was just teaching on this in Bible school today that in uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 that no one can be condemned with just one witness against them. There has to be the mouth of two or three witnesses. And if you go on in the 19th chapter it says that if that witness is proven to be incorrect then you have to do to the false witness what they were seeking to have done to the person they were testifying against. Did you know that all of that stuff is in our law? And uh, David Barton has the Founders Bible which is a phenomenal resource and it goes through the Bible and shows you how that they plucked all of these things about our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. It came straight from Scripture. There's over, you might know this David better than I do, but I think it's over 30 something references to sermons and Scriptures in uh, either the Declaration or the Constitution. And it was, matter of fact, David Barton says there would have been no United States if it hadn't have been for the revival and the preaching from the pulpits of the Word of God. So, Robert, again, I believe that the Word of God is the template. It's just that we haven't read it that way. And if we would open up our heart and ask God to show us, how do I take these truths and use it to change my situation, my culture, God would show you, and I believe that it would help you bring God's will to pass here on mm -hmm. earth. Yes, in fact, another scripture from Exodus 18:21, it says that moreover, you and God speaking uh, through his uh, through Moses' father-in-law Jethro to Moses, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. From that, our founding fathers saw the model for national government, like rulers of thousands, for state government, like rulers of hundreds, for city government, or rather for um, county government as rulers of fifties, and city or municipal government as rulers of tens. And they also saw the scripture that said, the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? And for, from that they decided that these separation of powers mm -hmm. had to keep one branch of government from infringing on the other. Those weren't secular ideas, no. they came straight out of Scripture. So Robert, I really believe that just go back and read the Bible and ask God to show you how do I take this template and apply it, and God will give you some great wisdom. And I think if you develop a culture impact team where the pastor doesn't have time on Sunday morning to teach all of these things that the scripture has to say, you can teach the people within your church what the scriptures say about good government. You know, the scripture says that the government will be on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. Government is God's idea. And that if government is on his shoulder, we are his body and we are the shoulder yep. that carries government. And so the scripture is full with 
advice for us and the culture impact team can be a way to deliver that knowledge and that advice to people. So we've mentioned the culture impact teams. If a person says, man, I'd like to do that, how do they get started? Is there some place they go? They can connect with Truth and Liberty with the resources and they can uh, they will forward their contact to me and I can communicate with you. You can go to the um, the Family Research Council has a website for the community impact teams. And so that is listed on our uh, Truth and Liberty website. And they give videos, training videos, and a template for how they could start such a, a group. Amen. So thanks for the call, Robert. Let's go to Chin in Louisiana. You are on Truth and Liberty with Dave and Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for all you do. And um, my question is pretty simple, I think. Um, I would like you to help me out with... Um, practical ways that I could return to the simplicity of faith that I had when I was, uh, when I just got saved. I mean, when I got saved, I walked in, in this subconscious faith. Like I just prayed and I didn't know a lot of scripture, but I just believed that if I prayed, God heard me and things were just showing up. Like if I wanted a job, I just said, okay, Lord, I'm making only this amount. See, that's not enough to pay the bills. Could you please get me another job? Thank you. And in two days, I would get a new job. Mm -hmm. And now I know all this word, quote, unquote, and I'm walking in faith, quote, unquote. And things are harder. Oh, well, you know, I've got a lot I can say about that. And every person is going to be different. So I don't know exactly what your situation is. But I do know that a lot of people, when they first get born again, they're told you accept Jesus and all of your sins are forgiven and you're accepted with God. And because of that, you just have a confidence and a boldness, love. The Bible says, Galatians 5, 6, faith works by love. So you just pray and accept. It's simple. But then you go to church and they tell you that unless you pay your tithes and unless you live holy and unless you read the Bible and unless you do this and if you've gotten mad and, and they start putting all of these restrictions on you that they didn't put on you when it came to being born again. And so I think that it's misinformation that causes a lot of this. Now, there's, there's many other things that can happen. You can just become preoccupied with the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches and, and lust of other things. Mark chapter 4, verse uh, 19 says that'll choke the Word of God. So there's multiple things that can cause that, Chen, but I think that we just ought to go back to the simplicity. It really is as simple as what you're describing, and we make it complex and sometimes churches do that so that they can exercise control and keep you involved in all of their programs because without them, you won't be able to have a good relationship with the Lord. And if I could add, I experienced what you're talking about. I grew up under the Word, but I never really saw the results of supernatural, miraculous things happening. And so I believe the Word in theory, but... I didn't have any real confidence in it. I hadn't seen it modeled in front of me until I read the book that gave me an understanding that God does want us well, showed me the authority I had that it wasn't God's job to heal the sick. He sent his disciples out and he didn't say, go out and pray that God would heal them if it's his will. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And they went out and they came back rejoicing. And so I began to apply the word as I saw it, trusting that it would work. 
So I prayed for a lady with Alzheimer's and the results were so impactful that I began to have confidence again in the word. And what's more, it made me believe again that the entire word is true and is a promise to us and will work for us. And I began to apply the word, trust in the word, and if you do, I believe you'll see results again. So let me just say, Chen, that God wants you to return to your first love more than you want it. And so if you'll just cooperate and, and just be honest and say, God, I've, I've lost some of my simplicity and I've made it too hard. I want to just come back to the simplicity of it. He will help you. I believe God wants it more than you want it. So that's good. All right, let's go to our probably our last caller here, Brenda from California. You're on uh, Truth and Liberty Live call-in show with David and Andrew. Hi, David. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Um, mm -hmm. My question is for Andrew. Are you able to hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. A few weeks ago, one caller mentioned that he has prayed for his sick. I don't remember if it was a family member or a friend. But he's prayed for this person several times, speaking to the sickness, commanding it to go, and uh, doing everything he knew to do to the healing come, but healing had not manifested. So he asked Andrew what he should do. Now, Andrew explained certain things to him, and in Andrew's response, you also said that he should pray and leave it up to God. Now, my question is, what does that mean? Um, what does it mean, leave it up to God? Because I know I've heard you said several times that whether we get healed or not is not up to God. Since he has already done his part concerning our healing. So can you explain what you meant? Well, let me say that when you're praying for another person is different than when you're praying for yourself. It is God's will to heal every time. And I believe that God has already healed us. First Peter 2.24, by his stripes we are healed. So if you're praying for yourself... You don't just pray and then leave it up to God. You take your authority, you speak to the problem, you resist the devil, you build yourself up on your most holy faith, and there's all kinds of things you can do to manifest that healing. But when you're praying for another person, especially if it's not a person that's close to you, like in my situation, I hold a meeting and I'll have 100 people come and I'll pray for 100 people in one night and I just can't deal with everyone. So what I have to do is just pray, speak the Word of God, release my faith, and then I have to leave the results with God because I can't affect that person the way I can affect myself. So that's the context of what I was saying, that when I'm praying for other people, I can't take it personally. When I'm praying for myself, I can take it personally and say that I believe God's already done His part, and if I'm not seeing it manifest, then there's something I can do to get rid of my fear, my unbelief. I can deal with that or to build my faith or something. But when I pray for another person, I just have to pray for them and then leave it with God. And uh, sometimes people don't receive healing, not because God doesn't want them well, but because they don't know how to continue. They don't know how to cooperate. But... You're limited when you're praying for another person unless you can just stay with them. I'm sure that out of David, he prayed for all these people and 700 and something people were healed, but there's no telling how many you prayed for that they walked out and you never heard what the results were. Actually, there were 700 and some I prayed for. And out of that, I don't know an exact number that were healed. You don't always yeah. hear the results. In fact, I prayed for a man who was in such writhing agony with his back. He was visiting a lady who was a patient of mine, he was from Canada, 
and he was just in town for a short time, and he would just, oh, he would shift in his chair. He couldn't stand the pain. And I couldn't do anything for him by chiropractic because his body was in such spasm, it would resist what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I offered to pray for him, and he was willing to accept that. And so I just had to leave the result with God, as you say. And I never understood whether he had any results. But the lady who was his relative, who was my patient, came in about a year later. And uh, in the conversation, she says, oh, isn't it wonderful what happened with Jack? And you hadn't heard. I said, what happened with Jack? She says, while he was driving home, all the pain left. I didn't know it, and yet, I was willing to leave the results up to God, yeah. and the results did. If not. you pray for somebody and just expect healing right then, which is always God's best, but there's so many variables that the person may not be ready to receive right then or whatever. And if you just are looking for something to happen right then, and if you don't see it, then you say, well, it didn't work, then you haven't left the results up with God. Here's a way that I often say it, that if I pray for someone and they get healed, I don't take credit for it. It was God that did it. And if I pray for someone and they don't get healed, I don't take the blame for it. <laughs> now, I might be a part of the blame if I was operating in fear, but I'm not going to sit there and beat myself up. If I do, I'm not going to be able to see the next person I pray for here. So when I'm praying for another person, and this, Brenda, will answer your question, it really is when you're praying for other people. You just have to pray release your faith, do the best you can, and then you just leave the results with God because you can't go home with that person. You don't know what's going to happen, and you just have to trust that God's working with them. So that's the way you do it. We're out of time, but Dave, you did a great job today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I believe people were blessed by this. Again, if you want to inquire about a culture impact team and doing something in your church, you can go to truthandliberty.net and you can see information on that, and they will send you information. They will send your contact to David, and he can help you. Remember that we do this every weekday, Monday through Friday, at 3.30 in the afternoon, Mountain Time, to 5 o'clock, and we have on guests like this, and take your calls, and we'd love to have you join us every single day. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, and, and happy anniversary thank you. to you and Miriam. Thank you. That's awesome. Fifty-six Six. years. Yes. Man, that's awesome. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. We're going to do this again. You can still call our phone number, 719-635-1111. That's open 24-7 if you want more ministry. God bless you. Good night. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.